Welcome back. I'm your host, Karina Gutierrez. Today, my guest Isabella Imani and I cover everything you need to know about narcissistic abuse. So if you're currently dating a narcissist or maybe you have in the past, this episode is going to give you all the tools to understand how to identify the cyclical patterns of a narcissist, the psychological effects that these behaviors can have on your body, on your mind, and how to heal after this form of abuse. If you aren't familiar with Isabella Imani, she is an incredible trauma-informed coach for Fortune 500 CEOs. She is an author, she's a certified badass, and today you're actually going to be getting snippets of her book so you can get a taste of the magic. Let's get started. Isabella, what is narcissistic abuse? Great question. When I'm coaching this, because this is a part of segments that I coach and I have a curriculum around it, I make a distinction between the difference between narcissistic abuse and domestic violence, right? Mm. And there, there are more similarities than there are differences. But I think that was a really important nuance for me to at least touch because narcissistic abuse is, is higher in severity. That's because with mm. a narcissistic abuser, you are dealing with someone that actually has a genuine personality disorder, which means because of this personality disorder, they genuinely have a distorted view of reality. So the way that they treat people is they're less impacted by the way they treat people because of such a lack of empathy, which means a disconnection from self, which means a disconnect from others. So I think the biggest thing that I'd say is understanding the nuances that come with having that personality disorder and the severity of impact associated with it. Yeah, it's funny. It made me feel compassion for them, for the fact that they just... They can't even have that level of empathy for themselves. So needless to say, they're not going to have it for someone else. Yeah. And the thing about that too is, I mean, when I started doing a deep dive into this based off of my own, you know, relationships with narcissists in the past, I realized my strength in terms of healing was actually learning to have compassion for them. Hmm. And that's not to say, you know, to not have boundaries, right? Compassion without boundaries can just lead to a lot of re-traumatization, but I actually found healing from my narcissistic relationship because I was able to understand what was coming up for them with compassion. But that that also allowed me to set the biggest boundaries um, the world has ever known because of it as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How long into it did it take you to realize that he was a narcissist? Oh, boy. The narcissistic mask falls off pretty quick. Uh, we were together for almost two years and, you know, fun fact, we actually almost got married. I recognized pretty early on that he had a lot of just high conflict behaviors that I, you know, made note of, but they were so minor. And, you know, of course, when you're in the honeymoon phase, you can justify almost anything, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it felt like a, a behavior that, you know, I'm like, mm, this feels a little sticky. He doesn't entirely feel right, but it wasn't enough to be like, oh, this feels wrong. So I should leave. But going to your original question, it took me about six months to start to see the mask or sorry, six weeks before I saw the mask fall off. Wow. Um, yeah. And my intuition was like red flags, high conflict partner. And this is a lot. This is actually aggressive behavior. And we went through this whole, I mean, our relationship was verbatim textbook, narcissistic abuse cycle. And knowing what I knew was helpful, speaking to the abuse and, and how painful and how difficult abusive relationships are hard to get out of, intellectualizing my experience didn't take away from the emotional experience that I was having, which made that exponentially harder to get out of. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you actually highlight that cycle? I know you've told me before, I know it's in your book, but that cycle of narcissistic abuse. Yeah. So I know one of the questions that we had talked about before we got on here was, you know, understanding like, how do you identify when you're in a narcissistic relationship? So I want to touch on that as it relates to the narcissistic abuse cycle. So I think something that I'd love your listeners or just anyone to know based off of, you know, my experiences is understanding that there are also just more than one type of narcissists, Mm -hmm. right? So there's the covert narcissist, which, you know, in many ways ends up being the most impactful um, because it's, it's the one less suspected, right? It's the person that seems like they're the do-gooder, right? Do good for all. And, and they do things from a place of altruism and, and spirituality and kindness. And, you know, those things are all beautiful, but it's all about intent, right? And is there like an exchange of energy where it's, you know, manipulative and I'm going to do this for you if I get X, Y, and Z in return is it mm-hmm. a way to maintain their, their platform and to be the center of attention and all the things. So understanding the different types of narcissists. So there's like covert narcissists, there's overt narcissists, there's somatic narcissists, mm. um, and there's also cerebral narcissists. So understanding the different types will help you to identify um, someone who is pretty high on the narcissistic spectrum. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I didn't know about all of these types. What yeah, I mean? didn't either until I started to heal and did research into how did I get myself here? Right. And what should I look out for next time? Whoa. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that speaks to the first part. And then going back to your, your original question, which is what is the abuse cycle? Um, well, it first starts out with idolization and then love bombing and then quickly leads into, you know, devaluing and then triangulation and then ultimately discard. Um, and then there's like hoovering tactics. So that's the short summary of what the, the cycle looks like. But there's, of course, nuances to each of the stages. Mm-hmm. And going back to what I said in my relationship, we went through the entire cycle. Yeah, yeah. I know yeah. that people are now curious about what those stages mean. Yeah. So in short, idolization is a part of the honeymoon stage where, you know, imagine meeting someone that just sweeps you off your feet. So it's idolizing. I found the perfect person. This is my person. It's almost like too good to be true. But, you know, of course we all want to go into brand new love with nothing but hope and, and faith that this is going to work out. So those are normal things. There's nothing to be ashamed of in the idolization part. Then comes the, the love bombing right? And this is where you can start to pick up on the nuances. It is mm. almost like this over-the-top grandiose gestures that are like covert forms of manipulation. It's the the whole twin flame effect, like you are my person, I am mm. yours, let's have babies tomorrow. It's the person that you meet within weeks and says, this is it, right? Uh. Together forever. Whereas true authentic love, takes time. You actually have to take the time to get to know someone and it doesn't happen within months, right? Um, I think research actually shows that it takes four to six months to really decide if this person is the person that you want to be with, Hmm. right? So the first six months relationship is absolutely crucial to picking up on these little things because if you find yourself in a relationship with a narcissist, the easiest way to, you know, avoid these types of relationships is to not get in them in the first place. Hmm. And the way you avoid getting into them is by trusting your intuition and picking up on the red flags pretty early. Um, And then, so after that, so it's, we went from idolization to love bombing and then comes to the the devaluing stage Mm -hmm. of the relationship. And that's where you start to see a lot more conflict happen. Who is this person in conflict? What are they like? And I tell my clients the difference between a healthy relationship 
And an unhealthy relationship is the way that conflict is essentially managed, right? Mm, yeah. And so during the devaluing stage, um, do they belittle you? Do they stop listening when you speak? Do they stop taking interest in you? Is it always one-sided? And that's, that's a little bit more obvious. Now getting into the less obvious, which is why these guys are masters at you know, pretending to be like the ideal partner, it's all in the covert nuances. So even if they're not devaluing you, are they essentially valuing other people more than you in your relationship? Oh. Start to look for those things because that's another form of manipulation and like their way of securing all of the attention, all of the, what we call narcissistic supply, which is basically all of this like admiration from, from you know, other sources. Right. Okay. So that's a part of the cycle. And I know I'm, I'm going through this pretty quickly. And then comes the triangulation. So once they start to devalue you, if you're in a relationship with this person, you're going to start to feel that tug away at your self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to feel particularly great. And that's when your wounds are going to start to surface. Right. And, you, and we call that crazy making, right. When they do enough of these maladaptive things to make you start to believe that, oh boy, I'm crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. Did I, did I really see you prioritize that other person's need so um overtly like over mine right did you really just say that thing did you really just put me down in front of that other person Mm. so it starts to eat away at your self-esteem then comes after they devalue you the triangulation portion of the relationship and this is I mean listen they're all pretty painful um but I remember this being particularly painful in my relationship where after he started to deteriorate at my self-esteem, basically, Isabella, you're crazy. None of that happened. Yeah, like maybe it did happen, but there were only a few photos. Like, wasn't that mm. big of a deal? I'm sorry, get over it. Then with the triangulation, so imagine it's exactly what it sounds like, a triangle where it's a relationship with you, the narcissist, and then this third thing, usually another person, but it could also be like an exiting behavior towards work. Mm. But if they're triangulating you with another person, Um, It's basically you, the narcissist and the other person where they actually start to give this third person more attention than you. It could be an old flame from the past or a new flame that they, you know, met at work and they're best friends suddenly, right? Mm. So then comes the triangulation and that's the narcissist's way of actually like bringing in more supply. And that's the start of the discard process. So, you know, funny story in my last relationship, he didn't know any of this, by the way, but I, the biggest reason I was able to leave that relationship was because I had such a close relationship with his mother, who was a saint. And Mm. she was the woman who behind the scenes gave me the courage to leave him. And she taught me this, this phrase called monkey barring. I had no idea what it meant um, because she had a very similar relationship with um, my partner's, my former partner's father. And she goes, well, you know, what does narcissist, and he was actually diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. His dad. His his dad was. So it's hereditary. So it's the other part. But anyway, Mm. she goes, what does a narcissist do um, before they leave a relationship? They monkey bar. When monkeys are swinging through the jungle, they basically don't leave one vine before grabbing on to another. And so that's essentially what happens during the triangulation process where they're looking for brand new supply essentially oh. to release or to replace you. So they're not going to leave you without having, you know, another few things lined up. Mm. And that's a really unfortunate reality of what happened in my relationship. Although I was the one who ultimately ended up leaving him mm. before the fifth and final stage, which is the discard, right? Where a lot of narcissists, instead of dealing with a problem head on, They'll manipulate a situation to 
you know, essentially get rid of you or discard you. In the case of my relationship, because we've already been through the cycle at least a, a couple of times, mm. he was such a high conflict partner that he would turn situations on to me. So if I saw him texting someone that, you know, wasn't exactly healthy for our relationship, oh. and I would, you know, just ask about, you know, what the relationship dynamic was, suddenly up in flames, our relationship would go. And it was, Isabella, you're crazy. I'm not doing anything. It's an ex, but we have mm. boundaries why ask all these questions? Like you don't trust me. And it was just immediate discard. So understanding the nuances there will, will help you. The cycle is also encompassing of just different understanding the different tactics of emotional abuse that these, I guess, predators. And that's, I, in my opinion, the best way to describe it. Predators disguised as perfect partners. Understanding the different nuances of emotional abuse will also help you to either pull yourself out of these relationships if you find yourself in them currently mm. or to um, identify these patterns before you engage in them long-term. That was a lot of information. <laughs> yeah, it was. And you blew my mind because I, I didn't know about the cycle, first of all. And it makes me think that it's probably really hard to leave it, especially after being idolized and being love-bombed. Yeah. And thinking like, no, yeah. this is my person. Do you think that people can get desensitized to love in the sense that you know, they're so used to this love bombing and this like being idolized and whatnot, that when someone comes along, that's quote unquote healthy and maybe doesn't do that, they feel like it's, it's like oh, not yeah. even worth it slash not enough. Is that a thing? I think at 5,000% is a thing. Um, I know that I even experienced that as I was healing where I was so used to like the grandiose, like, I mean, listen, we knew each other and we hit it off right away and we were spending so many days together and we were going on like like big grandiose trips almost immediately. And mm. I was so used to that um, until I started to do the inner work. And I think I mentioned this earlier where I call it kind of like a forest fire love, where it's mm. like, it's almost exactly like it is a forest fire where you meet this person, it's hot and heavy pretty quick. Oof. You like have like this huge like passion and then it ignites, um, right? And then it really just like implodes as quickly as it ignited. And that's Ooh. the way I describe these types Ooh. of relationships. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So if someone is in a narcissistic relationship, is it doomed? Like, is it possible to have a healthy relationship with a narcissist? I consider it. And that's a great question um, because that was a question that I even had to research. Can we make this happen? And wow. one of the questions that I had to ask myself is, well, it's like, can you have a healthy relationship with someone who is consistently being unhealthy? And my answer to that was no, because I really had to look at, you know, what was happening in our relationship and as much, I mean, it was the most painful experience to leave a man that I was still madly in love with and knowing all of the, the things and even firsthand experiencing the psychological abuse um, was enough data points. It was explicit data points, right? And repetitive. And I had to really sit down with that question um, kind of framed differently than the question you asked, which is, can you have a healthy relationship with someone who is unhealthy? Oof. And um, that's something that your listeners will have to ask themselves mm. when it comes down to it. But that was one of the reflection questions because I do coach this. Um, you know, I then asked myself, which is, you know, when is enough enough? Mm. Yeah, that's tough to swallow. But also it makes me think of that very cliche saying, which is you can take the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And knowing yeah. you, I'm sure you brought him yeah. to water numerous times being the amazing coach you are. And it sounds like he wasn't willing to do the work. You know, the crazy part about that, and I actually really love that you said that, was it was a little deceptive um, because on paper, it looked like we were doing the work. We had rituals. We had 
I mean, our rituals were top-notch rituals where every morning we would do like sonic cold plunge. So we also had little affirmations that we'd do in the morning. We even did couples therapy once a week, sometimes twice a week if you really, really needed it. So much so that, you know, on paper, it was like, cool, like we were happy and healthy. But this goes to something that I speak to with all of my clients and just a personal um, responsibility of myself and accountability of myself, which is taking in information is not the same as doing the work, right? Mm. You actually have to do something with the information that you're learning Mm. in couples therapy um, in order to be healthy. So just because we were talking about our problems, we were doing a lot of, and this is actually a good nuance for your listeners to be mindful of too in their relationships. We were doing a lot of symptom management, but not root cause. And from a trauma-informed perspective, We were working with a couples counselor who knew nothing about trauma-informed anything. So it was really frustrating being in her presence where I felt gaslit in in session even um, because it was so much focused on, okay, well, why are you texting these other women? Or it was the symptom of, okay, that you're texting these other women. So we'd conflict about that. But it's really the root cause of that is why are you texting these other women? Right, right. Right. And that it, it gets a little, it gets a little circular. So pay attention to those, those nuances as well. Mm, yeah. Well, I can see how draining that must be. First of all, how does one find healing after that? Like after feeling like they were taking on a, a wild journey of ups and downs, how do you find healing after that? My research was a lot of help. Um, and I know not everyone's going to go and do their research, but it is something that I actually would advise people to at least know enough on to start to catch this as you begin to date. The biggest thing around these abusive relationship dynamics is they're not always physical. In fact, with these relationship dynamics, they're actually mostly psychological. So Mm. unless you're mindful of emotional abuse tactics, you are at a disadvantage. So Mm. understanding that belittling is a form of emotional abuse is important. Um, you know, that there are things like narcissistic rage, narcissistic injury, there's, you know, passive aggressiveness, there's pity play, there's reactive abuse, there's blame shifting, right? So understanding that will help you to heal. Um, understanding actually a lot about yourself, mm-hmm. I think is another way to help you to heal. I know for me, it's easy to point fingers at, you know, who he was and additionally who he wasn't right? But it does take 50-50. And this isn't a form of victim blaming because I do, you know, I don't believe in blaming myself for my experience, but I do believe in personal accountability for my my participation in my own experience, which meant I had to be really honest about getting to know who I was. And the things that I valued, which was, you know, high empathy, forgiveness, all the things I had to, had to learn that, you know, empathy without boundaries is really just another form of someone else being able to manipulate you. Um, so holding yourself accountable to doing your inner work, boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. I know that sounds really, 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 really simple. There's nothing a narcissist hates more Hmm. than when you start to set boundaries. So being able to set boundaries and, and stay firm on those things and believing that you're worthy is certainly another great way to heal. And then the last thing I'll say about that too is finding safety in community. Oftentimes when we find ourselves in abusive relationships, isolation is one of the key strategies Mm -hmm. a narcissist will use against their victims to pull them out of the safety of their social circles. I was a victim of this as well. We were traveling all over the world together nonstop. We were also going to a lot of events where it was mostly his friends, mostly his, his events. And so I was pulled away from the safety of my social circles so much so that when the abuse got to where it was and it was it was bad. It was very bad. I was so ashamed to tell the people that I'd already pushed away. So yeah. And because isolation is a form of 
you know, manipulation and abuse that they, they use as their strategy, taking your power back by finding safety and mm. not isolating anymore is another great way to heal. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense why they, I mean, it makes complete sense why they would isolate you so that you yeah. don't have anyone to count on. And, oh my God, actually just had this epiphany. I wonder if isolating you then helps with the gaslighting because you're already questioning yourself. And then if you have no one to ask for external support, you're just constantly questioning yourself in your brain. Exactly. I love that you said that because gaslighting is definitely one of the the common forms of psychological abuse that uh, narcissists will use. And gaslighting is essentially when you make a person question their current reality. The hard part about that is that it just is extraordinarily invalidating. It makes you feel like what happened didn't actually happen. And you don't know, you know, up from down or, you know, who's safe and who's not safe and how much this person cares versus how much they don't care. And creating that push-pull dynamic externally creates one internally. And when Mm. that starts to seep into your subconscious and you start doubting every part and piece of who you are and and who other people are and and who this person is in relationship to you, that makes it stickier to get out of for sure. You basically start to not trust yourself in like at the most basic level. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that helped me to get out of my relationship is, well, several things, but certainly I I then started reaching out to community, but I actually started to make a list. It was towards the last two and a half months of our relationship when the abuse was was so bad. It was absolutely at its peak. I was crying every single day and it was no longer just like, you know, belittling, you know, here and there. It was every single day, several times a day, Mm -hmm. just aggressive name calling, yelling, picking fights out of thin air, all the things. So I started to make a list of everything he said. And I remember the day that I left him, I said, hey, you did X, Y, and Z things to me. And he goes, no, I didn't. Blatantly to my face. No, I didn't. And I go, he goes, you have no proof. And I said, I wrote everything down. And he goes, that proves nothing. I never said any of those things. And even with the proof that I had, the real life documentation to support my beliefs, I still was like, oh, did I write those things down wrong? Mm. (laughs) Well, did any of this really happen? Because he just said no, but I remember it specifically and I promised myself I'd write I'd write it down. And that was such a pain for me. Yeah. Uh, so so certainly the the safe communal support will help you to validate your experience. You have to be strong enough and you have to be willing enough to accept it as well. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I I hope what that anecdote does is helps people to see that gaslighting is like it's a it's psychological abuse like to make someone question their own reality where they think that they're crazy is that considered covert or overt covert certainly certainly and and i think that's where really i mean if there's one thing that i can say to your listeners to really just double down on it's really just understanding these nuances i actually talk about in my book i have a whole seven day section around narcissistic abuse and it's it's a really simple daily integrative practice but it literally just just like dumps all of this in there Mm -hmm. where Um, you start to understand these nuances of specifically the covert emotional abuse that we, we normalize. And that's the worst part is I see it all over social media, the way we normalize um, these types of behaviors and what's normal, what's normalized shouldn't necessarily be normal. And I say that because it's important to understand the nuances of, of covert emotional abuse, such as Mm -hmm. gaslighting. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. I think the best thing someone can do is like you're saying, educate themselves on, on these words. Cause when you have those distinctions, then I feel like, you know, what to do about it. And also yeah. maybe it helps people feel less crazy. 
because this is a yeah, thing that absolutely. happens. I could not agree more. The crazy making is a real term. And that's, mm. that essentially amplifies the severity and the impacts of gaslighting, because then you actually start to believe, oh my gosh, I must be crazy. One of the nuances of covert emotional abuse is, is minimizing and blame shifting. Um, so all terms to know. When you start to trust your intuition, you'll start to realize, no, I, I'm not insecure. Um, I don't have trust issues. Maybe this person has flying issues. And that's, <laughs> you know, a good reframe to consider. Um <laughs> Yeah, little things like that. Yes. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Let's end on what is one thing you wish you knew when you were in that relationship? What's one thing that you wish you had known? I think the biggest thing that I wish I had known was to trust my intuition more. Hmm. I didn't know enough about myself to feel safe and secure enough with myself to trust my intuition and, and that was a part of a lesson that I learned certainly the hard way, but your intuition is really just your highest self, giving you the answers of what is healthy for you and what is not. And yeah. every time my boundaries were bypassed, I let it happen. Um, justifying why his reasons were, you know, certainly better than mine at the time. Mm. And if I really just took time to myself to listen to what felt right and aligned, then I think I could have avoided a lot of really sticky situations. Um, wow. anyone who's listening who finds himself in a questionable relationship trust your intuition because your intuition wants you to do what's healthy you can never go wrong with trusting your intuition it'll never lead you astray yeah. maybe we should do an intuition podcast episode in the future Ooh, sign me up all right so i have a poll on this podcast so comment below what it is that you want to know next what it is you want us to talk about so Isabella and I can make another episode mm -hmm. and I'm going to put on the show notes, your book. So people know where to find you, your website, your Instagram. Thank you so much. Isabella. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, there's one super special way that you can give back. And that is by liking and leaving a review. This is how the algorithm gets the message to spread the show. And together we can help people find healing one podcast episode at a time. You can find me on social media at Strategic Soul or on my website at www.mystrategicsoul.com. I am looking forward to hearing from you, sharing space with you, and being on this path together. Ciao.